2: Yep, yeah, we're back with uh, another edition of the NFL Player Podcast, and I'm honored to interview and talk to one of my favorite defensive players ever, a former number 26. I wore 26 for a lot of my career until I joined a team with Saquon Barkley, but well, that's for another that's for another <laughs> talk. Nike wasn't going to give me that number, but uh, the great Rod Woodson, captain of the AFC side, of the Pro Bowl. Rod, how you doing, man? Man, I'm doing awesome. How about yourself? Doing great. Honored to, honored to talk to you today, to uh, do some locker room talk, to break it down, some DB talk, give some fans, hopefully some young um, athletes out there some insight on the game and, and pick your brain a little bit. I, mean, I look forward to it, brother. Well, first of all, I, I hear you are residing in, in Vegas nowadays. So how about football in Vegas? How's that been with the, the Raiders moving there and uh, the Pro Bowl being there and kind of the fan base? How, how's that? How's that coming along, you think? A lot of good things are going to happen here in the the future
3: when it comes to football in Las Vegas, when you never really thought about that. I mean, I never pictured a football team being in Las Vegas. I don't think too many people really did, but it's here. I think the Golden Knights kind of, you know, which is the hockey team, they kind of broke everybody into the professional world uh, several years ago. Now the Raiders have been here for a couple years. And a lot of good things are going to happen to this area because of that, because of the NFL being here. But, you know, the Raiders are, they've done a tremendous job in the community uh, going out there and spreading the love to the next generation because everybody's trying to figure out, you know, are you going to be a Raider fan? You know, where are you from? And I think it's going to take a couple generations for those kids to kind of grow up seeing the silver and black. And then they're going to become avid fans of the silver and black.
2: And you hope that that allegiance from. Trump- from Oakland, one of the greatest fan bases, you know, makes that trip as well and, and supports them because playing there, playing in that black hole—I'm sure we all have—but the ones that are fortunate. It's definitely an experience, probably one of the best venues to play at, just with the fan energy and, and what they bring.
3: Yeah, I tell you what—they're uh, traveling. I can tell you that. <laughs> I can tell you that when uh, when the gates start opening up, uh, even though you had to get vaccinated and show your vaccination card and all that stuff through Clear. Uh, they were they were traveling, you know, from LA, the whole West Coast, you know, just you know, in general, you know, being from LA, San Diego, the Bay Area, they were coming here in troves, and you know, the black flags were flying in the parking lots all over the place. So, you know, and that's just the taste of it. Uh, and then once they start, you know, I think Josh McDaniels is doing a tremendous job of bringing that winning culture to the team and you know, once you win, obviously everybody's going to be more into it.
2: Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I've, I've played um, under Josh McDaniels. He was YOC for some years there in New England. Really smart, really bright, a great leader. I'm excited for him. Dave Ziegler, obviously. So they're going to bring that way there to do it the right way. And, you know, Derek Carr, quarterback like Derek Carr, who, you know, may be probably very underrated. But a great command, a winner. It seems like, and is not afraid to take ownership and put it on his shoulders and, and go out there. He had some great performances this year, so I think it's definitely bright out there with with the Josh McDaniels and and Derek Carr combination. What do you see potentially what that could be?
3: Well, I think you're right. I think you know you know Derek Carr is a very underrated player in the National Football League. When you talk about you know the top tier quarterbacks, they normally don't mention Derek, but every single year, especially this past year. I mean, he was slinging that rock all over the place. Um, you know, they got a good young nucleus when it comes to their skill positions. You got Josh at the running back position. You know, you got Jones and Edwards at the uh, receiver positions, and you got one of the best tight ends in the National Football League in Waller. So you have all the pieces there, and then you have a veteran. And he, so I mean, Derek has been through it now, right? He's been right. through it all. He, you know, he's been he's been with the highs, he's been with the lows, he's been in the playoffs. Uh, he, he's felt the losses, so nothing should surprise him anymore. And then, but I think what's gonna, what Josh is gonna do for him is kind of open up his eyes to what offenses really can be, and it might be a different offensive system each week. You know, the one week they might go, you know, heavy run. Uh, next week they're gonna go dink and dunk, and the next week they're gonna take the top off of a defense. So, you know, you, you like I think the future for the silver and black and what Derek has. Uh, up and coming because I I think Josh is going to open that all up for him.
2: Yeah, two things I think you failed to mention Hunter Renfro. He's he's running a whole new I forgot new route about Hunter. Yeah, you you know I forgot running about a, Hunter. He's running a route right. tree that is not what you grow up covering as a DB. You know it's not it's not just the, the breaks on ninety with him. He's he's running some routes that that's right. You saw off YouTube, but guess what? They get open and he catches the ball. So you can't you can't do anything about and it. And when you
3: see him, you're like, what? you play in the National Football League? Like, you look like you're a librarian. But right. the guy, just a skilled route runner, and he's really a fierce competitor. I mean, you really think about how he got to where he was at in college and finally getting a scholarship. He had to, had to work his way through it all. That tells you about his determination and how much he works.
2: Is there a guy in your day that you played against or played with where it didn't look like he was a player? But he was really a player. Like he looked like he should be doing something else. And you're like, no, nah, this guy's got skill. Like a Hunter Renfro. Was there somebody that was bad body or just like? Yeah, oh, I can't like say nothing. bad body, but
3: this guy's. I mean, uh, you know, tremendous receiver. But uh, Steve Largent. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I remember playing against him, and I'm like. This guy is small, man. He's not real fast, but dang, how is he always getting open? Like, (laughs) it was just one of those things. And then just when you start watching him play, you're like, oh, the dude reads defenses like no other. He finds the open spots. He knows how to work a defender on his leverage. So you can't underestimate what the book, what the cover looks like, because the in depth pages of the book might be greater than what that cover is.
2: Yeah, the beauty of the NFL, I always say this, it just, it, it's an equal playing field if you can play or not play. If you can play, they'll find you. D2, D3, undrafted, it's harder for some guys than others. We know that. But eventually, after a year or two, you're going to have to actually be able to play or not. And it doesn't matter how many Twitter followers you have. It doesn't matter what celebrations you know. It doesn't matter if you're from the SEC or not. You're going to have to go up there. First, first overall pick or the lap, Mr. Irrelevant. It's everybody's on an equal playing field in terms of work ethic and what they do on Sundays. And I always thought that was the beauty of it that the game will humble everybody eventually. You know, the
3: great thing about sports and football in general, since we're, you know, that's what we played in, is that everybody has talent, right? That's why they're here. You know, the, the best of the best of the best of the best in the world play in the National Football League. And, you know, the ones who can separate themselves more mental, two to one mental to physical, kind of creates a great career for himself in the National Football League. And you know, so you, you can't underestimate what that person may look like how he's built because i played with some of my guys in Pittsburgh who didn't look like they were players. Right. But they were ballers. You just never really know.
2: Yeah. I think the the hard work, the dedication, the behind the scenes is really what creates longevity and, and success at this highest level. I mean, this is the highest in the world of what we do. And I actually had a taste of your hard work. I had a taste of your preparation because I got it from Carnell Lake. I don't know if you remember. But you and another Pittsburgh legend, Carnell Lake, had a certain running workout that y'all would do. When I was in Tennessee, uh, a guy named Mike Rabel came across as our coach, and he, and he liked my work ethic. And he said, Logan, you work, you work like ridiculously hard, and you remind me of some of these old veterans that I had when they came in the league. Always running, always working extra, always being the first one first off. You need to, I got to get you in contact with Rod and Carnell Lake, and I want you to, you know, see what their program was off the field. So I got Carnell Lake's contact, reached out to them, and started doing some of your running workouts that you guys did because you had a track background. So you want to share with some of the viewers what your offseason approach was and what, it, what, what you put into the game that they may, not, they may not see? Yeah, you know, we always
3: believed that we're not going to be outworked in the offseason you know, and before we got to the track, we always went swimming. We had like a little swimming workout routine, especially with Merrill Hodge. Uh, we would go to us—I um, I can't remember the name of the pool, but we would go to this pool. Sometimes we would do board work. Uh, we're all, we we're always in the water, working our legs, working our lungs. And then we would leave there and then drive from the pool to uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, College, where we, where we trained at, was about 30, 40 minutes. That was our rest time. And then we got there and we would kind of alternate with being, you know, 150s, do ladders. We'd do a one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. And then as the season progressed and the summertime progressed and get closer to the season, that's when we started doing flying 60s, flying 40s. What I mean by flying is that we jogged up to the line and then burst it. And, and that's what a DB is. a DB is a, is, a, is a burst of energy of trying to get to that next receiver right because the receivers going to create that separation naturally anyway, right because he knows where he's going, we don't. So having that in our system and at the end of the day, we live our we, our whole career is about our legs, our legs and our mind, right? I mean they they run two goes. they get to come out for a play. We stay in as DBs. And you know, we just always believed in, and I'm glad I had a running partner like Carnell Lake because that dude could man, he could run all day. I would build up a lot of lactic gasket. I would be hurting in, in training. But Carnell was one of those guys that kept pushing the envelope and just kept making us better.
2: And both of you very similarly played the corner and safety position at a high level. I'm someone who played my career at corner for a long time and, and, and transitioned to safety and having a lot of fun at that. So he, he did it in a sense where he started at safety and moved to corner which I don't think I've ever heard before, and you did it at an all-pro level at both positions. And I actually am really good friends with Devin McCourty who did it at an all-pro level at both positions. So what was the key to your versatility? When you played corner or played safety? did it really make a difference to you? I know my eyes were the biggest thing from folks on a small target to having to see the quarterback and the whole picture was like overwhelming. So how, how was that in terms of your discipline in your eyes? You know,
3: I i mean, I was a natural safety throughout my whole life. So when I was nine years old from Pop Warner all the way through Purdue, I played safety. I played a little corner my last year because they were telling me you, you might play corner. And then I ran my 40 time at the combine. They're like, oh, you're going to play corner. And I'm like, I am really was against playing corner because I, really, I didn't know how to play corner. I mean, I didn't because, you know, it's a different position. When you're playing a safety, you're looking at all 22. So you can kind of see the whole field. And when you're playing corner, you're playing kind of from a side view. And I really didn't understand that. But luckily, I had Tony Dungy, who's a great coach, a great mentor as a human being also. A guy that kind of gave me a lot of love, uh, didn't yell at me and scream at me as a rookie when I was making a whole bunch of crazy mistakes. I'm still looking in the backfield. I remember playing against James Lofton. I'm looking in the backfield. James Lofton runs right by me, and I'm still backpedaling. And they throw the ball, it's a touchdown. And I come to the sideline, and then coach is like, what were you doing? I'm like, I have no idea what I was thinking about, coach. I'm serious. And But, you know, most coaches would have got mad and all that stuff. You know, so it was fun to, to be there on that side view and then learn the game. And then I got a guy named Rod Rust, who's kind of a, a really good mentor for me because he's the one that challenged me very similar to what, Chuck Noll challenged me my rookie year. Chuck Noll told me this game is played more mental, two-to-one mental to physical, because everybody's talented. Some guys are just bigger, faster, stronger, quicker than others. But it's the guys who can take their self-study, their um, coaches' study, their peers' study, apply that back in practice every day, and then apply that back in the game throughout the course of your career. Then you separate yourselves from the average guy to great players. And I really didn't understand what he was saying until a guy named Rod Russ came in and said the exact same thing, but he cussed me out at the same time. And when he did that, it kind of, like, opened up my eyes to the game. He showed me how, what the offenses would do, how they would build formations, irrelevant of the personnel groupings. Right. And about five, I would say about four to five weeks into it, the green light clicked on, and, you know, I got to play at a really high level because of him. But I think the answer to the question back about corner and safety is the, it, it, the different mentality because at corner, you're on an island, and, you know, the, the, there has to be an idea behind it, and it's like no seams, no posts, no goes. You can't get beat deep. You got to have good fundamentals. You know, you got to make sure, you know, what, two hands, one hand, none. You know, that was our kind of our attitude. Yep. You know, and then at, at the end all – Be able to put your foot in the ground and don't be scared to go make some, you know, some money. You know, we always say scared money, don't make no money. Then I get Dick LeBeau come in and Dick LeBeau is telling us, hey, you know, sometimes the bear gets you. Sometimes you get the bear.
2: Sometimes you get the bear. The bear gets you.
3: That's right. And as long as you can get the bear more than he gets you, then you're doing a lot of good things. So but then when the mindset is a safety, I mean, it's I mean, you're in the core, you know, and I remember my first day. So it's like year now, year 13 for me, where I moved to safety, and I remember my first preseason game against the Atlanta Falcons and Jamal Anderson. He comes through the hole, I hit him, and he cracks me right in the face mask. My nose is bleeding. I'm playing with the Baltimore Ravens at the time. I look at Ray Lewis. I look at Ray, I said, Ray, huh? I don't know about this man. <laughs> I, don't about, I don't know about coming back in this box. Um, you know, it was, it was a different mindset that you had to have at safety comparable to corner. And I think more of a tougher mindset because, you know, you're going to be inserted into the box when you're in that box. I mean, that's
2: where the real men play at. Yeah. You know, my, my wife's a softball player. So, I, uh, she grew up in a baseball background. So I always try to relate to her in, in ways that she can understand. And when you play the slot corner, which has developed with the slot receivers in football and you play and and you play that perimeter corner, it's, It's like second base and shortstop. They're similar, but they're very different. You don't see too many second basemen going to play shortstop. You don't see too many shortstop going to play second base in the game. And your perimeter corners at the same time need a pitcher's mentality where they literally on their own island, and they have to be ultra confident, and they got to be kind of an airhead in a sense. If they give up a play, oh, well, got to go back and, and do it again. And then when you play safety, it's like going back to center field. Is nothing like the infield. There's a lot more angles, a lot more fits, a lot more gaps. The coming downhill, hitting Jamal Lewis's, breaking your face mask, that that type of football is slowly changing as you see. And a lot more corner bodies like myself and yourself will be a safety because these tight ends are receivers nowadays. So you see how the league is is becoming smaller, faster, more seven on seven. And obviously that physicality that that your error that all made us want to play football is kind of slowly. Diminishing.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the way the rules have changed. Um, The game has been the same, you know. So there's an old book written in the 1950s called The Spread Offense. Right. The Spread Offense has always been here. The only difference is the person who was catching the ball was a running back. You know, so you think of more of a pistol mentality behind it. And it was more, you know, sweeps and powers and all that, counters and all that st- type of stuff. And then they came into it with the little pop passes. And then they put a quarterback back there. But the, the idea behind the spread offense has been around for quite a long time. The rule changes, that's the key. Yeah. You know, that's the key to how everybody's playing. And the reason they are throwing the ball more because quarterbacks are overly protected in the pocket, out of the protect, uh, out of the pocket. The receivers are protected in traffic, right? You just really you don't know how to make contact with guys. And then the, I mean, the contact rule has always been there. I mean, you know, Mel Blunt, as big as he was, I mean, he's the main reason. That, I mean, he's the reason that we had the five-yard chuck rule, right? Because he was just tearing guys up all the way down the field. So those rules have changed, but the fundamental philosophy of football itself, when back end players talking about the DBs, you're, it's all about angles to the to the linebackers, to the front end, where it's more about leverage. You know, so it's that's been there for quite a while. It's just the way, you know, I played against the run and shoot, Well, you're just playing against the run and shoot every week,
2: right? And and those RPOs are a little different now. Your 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 run pass keys you better be a little, you better take a good read step because it makes sure you read it twice because I see tackles downfield nowadays and I got post routes over my head that was an RPO. Now they're throwing full on pass plays with tackles downfield. So those keys are a little messy. DB is the best position in the world, in my opinion, the hardest position aside from quarterback, but you don't always get the glory um, that, that that gets. So it's a, it takes a certain dude to, to do it um, and you got to do it for the love of it, I believe.
3: No, you're absolutely right. I, you know, sometimes you don't get, you know, all the big plays. You don't, you know, well, obviously the, you know, the glamour is the quarterback position and the divas are the receivers. Right. You know, they always say the next set of divas are the deep, the corners, right? The defensive backs, they're the next set of divas. But you do have to have a different mentality being back there because you are challenged. And, you know, a receiver can catch seven out of the ten balls – and he had a great day. But if a DB gives up, you know, if he's, if he's targeted, you know, five times and gives up three big ones and, but had a pick, he had a terrible day. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a different mindset on the back end. And like you said, you, you know, you gotta, you got to have a short memory back there. But at the end of end all, you got to be still willing to put your foot in the ground and go make
0: plays for your team. You go into your shower feeling tired.
5: Visit LiveNation.com slash to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, some 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
2: You know, you mentioned a guy that I, I played for and, and he was one of my favorite guys, Dick LeBeau. Having a coach who's played it, having his coach who's, who's coached at Hall of Fame levels, both sides, to come up and literally the same exact thing. Sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you. And he used to tell us stories about how he used to get beat. A lot of people don't understand that pressure That comes with nobody wants to be be on a double move. No one wants to get beat deep. You feel like you're the only person in the stadium that's rooting for yourself that play. You know, he said literally you want to dig a hole and and crawl out the bottom of the stadium sometimes when you're on the you trip and fall (laughs) or something like that. But having a coach to understand that, the patience with that and really teach you to keep making plays and go after it again, I think was so encouraging for me in my career. Having them in year five, six of my career was just. You know, he understood, and I think that was a, that was a great thing about uh, Dick LeBeau.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Dick is, first of all, he played at a very high level. Yeah. I and mean, he got 62 picks at corner. Back in the day, they we weren't even throwing the rock that much, right? right. Uh, you know, think about who he played with, though, right? He played with Night Train Lane and then Lim Barney. I mean, th- those guys are all Hall of Famers. I mean, this is that, that might have been this. I know they kind of overlapped each other, right? But just to think about what he went through back in his time frame, and then how he became this great coach because he knew what it took, but he allowed you to be you
2: inside of the system. That's what I loved about him. And then you went into coaching um, after your career. What what were some things being a player that you try to try to coach those guys? How was that? How was your mentality as a coach, and and how was that experience for you? I mean, the first thing as a coach
3: was really to let the players know that I care about them more than being a player. That I cared about them, about, you know, how they were at home, if they had girlfriends, kids, wives, engaged, whatever it might be. That's the first, because uh, all my coaches that I really cared about, cared about us as human beings. But then secondly, it was really just giving them the fundamentals. You know, and everybody sees the game differently. I'm a formation-driven guy, irrelevant of the personnel groupings, but everybody doesn't see the game that way. So learning how they learn. So what we, uh, we, you know, what we say in our circle is learn your learners. You know, is he a visual guy? Is he an audio guy? Is he a rep guy? What is he? And then teach him in that capacity. So for me, I was a visual guy. My coach can get up there, and it can be Dick LeBeau. It can be, it can be Chuck Noll, and he'll get up there and tell me something, and I'm like, uh, can you draw that one for me, Coach? But as soon as he draws it for me, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I got you. So that's one thing I had to learn how to do, like just listen to my players, see how they learn, and then give that back to them. But the biggest thing I enjoyed is like seeing them have success on the field, kind of like your kids, right? Your kids, you know, you want your kids to be successful in life. And it was the same thing, of, you know, for me coaching, talking to the guys, getting a little bit. And then when it happens well for them on the field, man, you're excited
2: for those guys. So what about them guys that didn't listen to the great Rod Woodson? Or what about those, how did you, how does that, you take that personal, how do you handle that for someone who's done it at a high level and some of these guys may, might not listen or not understand the opportunity they have? Well, I mean, you know, one thing we did say is that, you know, the NFL is fleeting, right? I mean, you,
3: you play in this league and you're here for five years it's over because they're always replenishing talent. And, you know, the one thing that we said, I didn't really get mad at the guys, but we knew that, you know, when you saw a certain guy that has so much talent and you knew, though, you had to keep your thumb on that one. Like, I have to keep pushing him. And I've seen coaches throughout my career when I was playing do that to certain players. They didn't have to do that to me per se, but I see them put their thumb on somebody and say, hey, I know you're talented, you're better than that. So a couple guys, I put my thumb on, I kind of wrote them um, a little bit, you know, but I don't, I don't raise my voice. I don't cuss or anything of that nature. You know, I just told him at the end result, it's was like, if you don't do it, if you can't get it accomplished the way you want to do it, then, you know, I'm just going to ask coach to set you down because we're all going to get fired. You know, so, uh, you know, that, that was a hard part. I didn't have too many of those guys.
2: And I had a coach tell me, and I think it was a great reference. Our, in this league, your hands and everyone else is in money. Everyone touches everyone's money. If the team yeah. is successful, everyone, you know, can, will have some type of success, maybe personally. If the team goes to the Super Bowl, a lot of guys are going to get second contracts. A lot of coaches are going to be hired to be head coaches. A lot of guys are going to be hired to be coordinators, and it's great. And it's, the, it's also the opposite. The team doesn't have success. Players don't listen. or coaches not coaching or whatever it is. Everyone's getting fired. So it is a it is a make or break almost every year. The, the league is a year to year year, and everyone's touching everybody's money. You know, everybody wants a winner.
3: When you win, you look way better. You <laughs> look better to the chicks. You look better to everybody. You look better to the general managers. But when you losing, man, nobody want no loser. I mean, this, this that's just one. That's the way it is, and that's and and that's what he's saying, and it's absolutely true.
2: Football is funny because football is the ultimate team sport, in my opinion, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of what it takes to win, in terms of some of the best players or plays don't get credit for how the play had happened or how it's going to, you know, what the result may be. But at the same time, you are trying to feed your family. You have worked your whole life for that. So I think it is the special teams that understand the special organizations that understand that it still takes sacrifice at this at this highest level individually at the sacrifice for the team, ultimately for success.
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I was blessed to go to a team, the Steelers, that had a culture and their their motto is the standard is a standard. You either here to the standard or you're not there. Uh, and that's a good thing for me. And I think that's good things for all players who come into the league. The problem is, you know, the, the way it's set up today is, you know, when I came in the league, most of the backup players were veterans, you know, five, six-year guys. So they could lead. They could help younger guys come through, right, because a lot of guys didn't make the roster. Well, now you, gotta, it got, you have to be a special veteran to make the roster. So it's a younger roster. It turns over a lot faster. You know, these kids are three years, four years. They're saying they're seasoned vets already. And I'm like, you're not seasoned vets yet because you don't even know it all yet. But that's just the way the game has gone. And you got to hope that somewhere along the line there is one vet that still can give a little love and and some uh, knowledge to the players where they can hold on to it. And hopefully the coaches do the same thing like Dick LeBeau. Dick LeBeau will give you nuggets all the time. Chuck Noah give me nuggets all the time. Those guys just put planted that seed, and then you gotta hope that other coaches
2: will come by and water it. Since year four, I was the oldest in my in my position group. And at <laughs> corner, I was the oldest in the room. Year five, year six, year seven. I'm in year ten. And I've been the oldest, the one of the leaders of my group, one of the oldest on the team now. There's not the 12, 13, your vets that are there to set the tone and then you have a bunch of five, six, like you said, So then of the end year five, you're, you second contract. You're like, you're it, you know, you got all the answers and, and guys are looking up to you because you're going to deal with guys all, you know, first, second year guys.
3: But how did you handle it at year four when you were, I mean, you were the vet in the room?
2: Yeah. And you know what? I was in the new England system and I had a good friend in Devin McCourty and Matt Slater, and these guys, these these key pieces, so I just had to do my job and understand my role. You know, if I had to give a couple of speeches, but I've always been an analytical guy. I've always been a film study, um, so when guys would see me make plays, I was never the fastest DB on any team I've been on. Uh, always fundamentally sound, always doing extra, jump roping, running, um, a lot of man press stuff before practice, catching balls off the jugs after. So guys would kind of, Fall into that. And I always would watch other guys in the league. I would watch the Rebuses. I would watch the Champ Baileys. I would watch Charles Woodson and try to steal something every offseason from them. When I would bring it to my game, I say, oh, when it's this, I see how so and so plays three by one. I see how so and so plays two by two. I look at the game same way as you do formations. And I would steal something from a guy who played a lot of off. I played a lot of press, but if a guy was playing a lot of off, I would say, okay, instead of me just learning it, let me see how he plays it because he's playing it at a high level. So I'll bring those nuggets to the young guys. And I think those nuggets for them, the production on the field, and I think that's when guys really say, you know, Logan's doing it the right way. He's not trying to jump over anybody else. He's kind of minding his own business, putting in his work, and I, and they see it happen. They see it manufactured through practice. I would try to be a dominant practice player,
3: and I, and I think that's the key, you know, Logan. you You said that. You did everything the right way, but you also bought out on game day, right? <laughs> so you can't – you yeah, so you can't be the leader without balling, right? They can say, oh, hey, you know, my, he's doing everything the right way, but he's getting, he's getting drilled on game day. They see the production from the work, right? They see how everything is – like on game day – that's when, you're, that's when your withdrawals are coming, right? So you, yeah. during the week, you're, you're putting your money in the bank, you're putting your money in the bank, you're putting your money in the bank. Game day, you start withdrawing, it and they're like, you know what? My man getting his work in, and he's making plays now. So then that makes the younger guys start doing it. And then once they see that, that's kind of a habit that you got to hope that uh, trickles down to all the young players that come into the room.
2: One of the fastest men in the league. Do you miss – Well. Back in the Pro Bowl, we used to have those competitions, and I and as a kid, I grew up watching those. So, what was it like competing in those? And do you think the NFL needs to bring those back? Strongest man, fastest man, all that type of stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the fastest man wasn't at the Pro Bowls, but we well, always yeah, had. I was, this, outside,
2: I was outside of that.
3: That right? was outside. It was it was really right after it, right? Yeah, we, we had it in Indio, California. Um, you know, I ran in it in a couple times, um, but. It was a blast, especially my rookie year. You know, I got, I you know, I came in and you know, everybody knows who Willie Gold is and Herschel Walker, all those guys, and how fast they were. You know, I got to run against those guys and kind of show my wear, like a you know, DBs. We got speed too, and really the the two finalists in the uh, the world that fastest man contest was me and Daryl Green. Oh yeah. So it was two DBs. So we were letting the world know that defensive backs can run just as fast as receivers run. Uh, But it was fun. You know, anytime you compete, if you're a competitor, you like to compete. You know, so I'm an old-school competitor. I got two older brothers. Man, we used to race, play, fight. I mean, we used to do everything, play football in the streets of Fort Wayne, Indiana. You know, you go from telephone pole to telephone pole. In the wintertime, that car is out of bounds. If you slide into it and hit it, then you slide into it and hit it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's back when you had to get in before the streetlights. Days that's right gone. We're, that's we're tracking right. our kids now you're tracking them with it they better have their iphone on them at all times hey man i think i think that's our time right there i mean it was awesome chatting with you um talking about the greats um talking about your process and and i'm honored to do this podcast and the reason why i wanted to do is to talk to people like you and, and pick your brains hopefully there's some young db listening or some fans listening to give them insight of of what really goes in there uh, in, in our heads, you know, before the snap. Cause there's a lot that does it and, and, and it's, it's hard, but um, the great ones that we found the way work, work and work some more. It pays off that it does, man. I definitely appreciate it. I appreciate you, man. Have a good day. I appreciate you taking the time.
4: Thanks for joining us on the NFL players podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow at NFL Players Podcast on Instagram for the latest player stories and to connect with the NFL Players community.
0: You go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower,